And we're off again. RTT number 75. It is our, whatever that is, platinum anniversary, you know, uranium anniversary. I don't know what it is. It's some some sort of, what is the 75th anniversary? Do we have any, is there a name for that? Uh, probably, I think. 50th is golden. Diamond, yeah. is it diamond? It's diamond. Ooh, ooh, diamond, diamond anniversary. Shining bright like a diamond. <laughs> Turning the gym. Yeah. That's it, that's it. We have responded to the pressure. We've been formed, <laughs> we've come out a diamond. We were uh, we were worthless. <laughs> amen, brother. But, but we have enough yeah. pressure was applied, and we are <laughs> we're expensive. Right. <laughs> yes, now we're expensive. Uh, so, um, strangely enough, awkward segue. Um, we're going to talk <laughs> about change. Somebody is in the process of change, uh, and what we're going to talk about uh, today, and. Uh, you know, we might as well just dive right into it. So what changes your mind? Uh, How do you change your mind? Uh, In this age we live in where it seems like people changing their mind is eh, uh, maybe rare. Uh, You know, uh, how do you change your mind? Um. What changes think, it? What convinces yeah, what you? What changes what, my mind? What's that process like? I think for me, there's a few few different things. One of them is uh, if I have a level of trust with the person or the authority figure, like mm-hmm. just say it's an author I'm reading, mm-hmm. and there's someone that I tend to trust, mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're you know presenting new information to me that maybe doesn't match with my old information. Um, I usually consider it with a little more weight, like, okay, well, I, I, you know, maybe I've following them before. So at least, you know, give it, give it some type of consideration. This person knows what they're talking about generally. And uh, I wouldn't have thought this, but since they're saying it, yeah. So there's uh, some previous connection, some previous, uh, you know, validation or whatever. Um, uh, what else? Or yeah, maybe, I think the, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's another the, one. The other thing oh, for me yeah. is I, I think I, I'm hesitant. And sometimes this is probably a flaw. I just wait a long time and, and wait and try to gather more information or more research. And I sit on stuff and mm-hmm. I, I, I think sometimes it's maybe a way of escaping changing my mind because I think, well, I don't have to decide right now. So I just don't decide and I don't yeah. actually change my mind. Yeah. I think that can be a strength or a weakness depending like you don't feel like you have to make up your mind right away. Cause I do think there are people who are as soon as they hear about something, they have to decide about it. Uh, and then they just get hardened into their, into their decisions. And then sometimes you can say, well, I don't know, I'm just, I'm still whatever. Or that could be a, a way in which you never, you know, this is, I'm always saying I'm deciding and I never actually. I'm going to keep waiting it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep waiting it out. Um, yeah, I think, uh, so you're already putting, I think, a finger on some sort of, uh, 
I don't know, emotional stances or views of the world stances or relational stances that go into changing your mind. It's not simply mathematics, really. Uh, I mean, that sort of thing maybe can change our mind, but we don't usually encounter, you know, people aren't making courtroom if this, then that arguments to us all the time. Typically Mm -hmm. it's a little more fluid, a little more relational. uh, And I do think if you look at the question the other way, what keeps you from changing your mind? um, I think maybe some of the answers to that might be, well, is there a cost? Like what, what would the cost be? If I, if it's, you know, I've decided I like, um, chocolate chocolate chip ice cream better than vanilla chocolate chip ice cream mm-hmm. i mean that's that's there's no cost to that it's not like it but if i'm you know what i've decided i i'm not really going to think of myself as affiliated with either political party or uh i'm going to you know question this belief which has been part of my identity or part of my tribe or part of my self-perception even to my own self, there's you know, there's more of a weightiness or a cost to uh, my status, my tribe, you know, uh, and that all that might cause us to be much slower to change our mind or much more hesitant with the same amount of evidence as with somebody else, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think sometimes we would theoretically we want to say, well, if I was just presented new information that contradicted my old information, but obviously the new information was more true or true than I would change my mind. But that's just, I don't think that's a safe uh, assumption because there's so many dynamics that go into that. There's so many relational ties that go into that. And I think this is where we want to at least give a nod to values and emotions and um, things that go on under the surface uh, in our heart of, well, I can't change my mind because that would mean rejection from my tribe. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think what you said under the surface is key party to part of that is that you're not actually consciously thinking that often. Yeah. You're not saying it like that. You're not saying it like that. It's all sort of within yourself. <clears throat> and I don't want to put it out there as if changing your mind is always a positive. Sure. Uh, obviously, um, you know, retaining beliefs, uh, if the belief is true and might be the positive uh, here, but just openness to, you know, can I, am I really considering what's before me in a way that, that is real and true and honest, or am I just kind of turning away from it because I don't want to see it? I don't want to consider it. Um, you know, for me, again, I've talked about having a having an understanding of the reality that we're in this big story uh and so that's sort of a found so there's levels of you know things that that you know so i believe we're in this big god story that's foundational to a lot of other beliefs um i'm uh, i'm in some ways more committed to that belief than a lot of other individual beliefs like how old the earth is or you know uh you know, did the Big Bang happen when God said, let there be light? Those sorts of things, again, partly are a little less knowable. Um, 
but they could come and go as long as the big foundational belief changes. So I think that's another part of it where I would be very slow to partly because of a number of things that we'll talk about, I think, as we go along. But I'd be very slow to change my mind on that, not just because I built a lot of beliefs on it, but I have, uh, but because, you know, that belief comes from a belief that God exists, that the Bible is his communication to us of a lived spiritual reality that I have that fits with that story and it fits with the Bible, fits with God, the community of God's people and so on. And so, <clears throat> so there's a lot of things that kind of, you know, that's a foundational belief in an unlike, you know, uh, vanilla chocolate chip or chocolate chocolate chip, right. where that's a, a trivial by comparison. And I think it's good. I think I found it helpful. I think it's good. I think it's, I think everyone has a foundational understanding of the world de facto they may not know what it is mm -hmm. i think it's kind of good to know what that is and name it uh and and there's a few things that are sort of basic to that understanding and then a lot of other things you're much more open to it could be this or it could be that mm -hmm. i think what, without naming that sometimes it feels like that some people have a thousand things they must believe all of them are non-negotiable and if they, if they feel like if they let go of one of them Mm -hmm. they've let go they've let go of the whole thing and they question right. everything um and that's kind of where you know uh it's like you said that you know it's it, you know what what are you uh, so i'm i'm spiritually committed i'm emotionally committed i'm intellectually committed to a, a few foundational beliefs um that then inform a bunch of other things uh because like i think it's as you said it's not we want we like to say there's a set of facts I have a new set of facts and therefore I'm going to reevaluate my beliefs where there's a value judgment that goes into interpreting those facts and picking out which facts are important and which facts are not. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine who was talking to uh, an agnostic or an atheist. And that's kind of what he says. I want everything to my, all of my beliefs to be based on facts. And I said, you can't get from a set of facts to then this is how I must live. Because in between those two places, there's judgments of value, like mm -hmm. which facts are important mm -hmm. and why, you know, why this fact over that you're, you're, you know, you're placing some level of value on them that that value comes from some, something else, some prior understanding. Uh, and so to examine what is that thing that I'm really committed to, and to be, you know, again, to be committed to it, I think to be people of faith who are committed to a certain set of beliefs that are core, uh, one of which is who Jesus is, for instance. Um, and then th that gives me the freedom to a number of other beliefs. I don't have to be as, you know, I don't have to be as hard or scared or worried or something. You know, do you know what I'm saying? That there are people that there's a whole bunch of facts and they feel like they can't let go of any of them. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think nailing down your foundational view of the world and how does it work and your view of good and evil and justice and all those things. If you can be confident in that, then you can probably or, or should I say, you know, maybe there's other things that work here, but should we be able to hold the other 
how these actually individual pieces fit within the larger part, you know, sometimes you, you, you can hold those a bit looser because you are able to hold the, the wider story. So, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I, you know, it's, uh, this is a, this is a really interesting conversation because I think, uh, there's so much that goes on and, I think sometimes people form their view of the world, like the assumption of that conversation you just shared is an assumption that it's also, a, for me, a very enlightenment, post-enlightenment assumption that I think, therefore, I am the elevation of rationalism over and above everything else. We are rational beings, and that's primarily the, the image of God and da-da-da-da-da. So therefore, I can think through these set of facts with no inhibitions, and then therefore, that's going right. to lead me to blah blah blah. And I, I, I don't know if uh, philosophers and scientists today would even say that's that's how we're working no. through things now. Right. Um, right. We want to say I am the perfectly objective interpreter of these yes. facts that I have perfectly objectively chosen. And that's no, there's no such thing. I mean, there's other, lots of other commitments that go into, uh, and I would say in my experience, people who are, uh, you know, angry, kind of angry atheists, um, it's not because of the facts, you know, they've had experience in their life that have brought that anger. The facts aren't making them angry. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's something else that's happened. Um, so all of that to, to kind of get us to this point of let's we're talking about somebody who's going to change all of, you know, revisit all of their belief systems and their, that they're really entrenched into to become a follower of Jesus. And, and just to sort of throw that out there, that that's sort of what we're asking people. That's not sort of, that's what we're asking people to do. And we're calling them to become a follower of Jesus is change a lot about beliefs, identity, perception, self-perception, status, tribe, blah, blah, blah. It's a big deal we're asking for. Well, I, I like how we've started the conversation because it, um, then we start to realize uh, when we're asking people to question the very foundations with which they may hold very dear. Like that, that's, that is a big deal because a big deal. If someone was asking us to consider the sure. very foundations of theism that god exists mm -hmm. and there's a plan for the world like right. that would feel like a very big deal right and i do think you know as we've said before the more that i can narrow down my core beliefs the more open i am to that conversation because i do think that's fair in in a conversation with somebody else that if i'm asking them to question it that they ought to be allowed to question mine and have me respond to that that's a fair thing and if I'm like, I can't do that, or, or that makes me whatever, or I get sort of snippy, well, then that's probably not going to, that's going to short circuit the conversation. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the passage here is John 3, and it's Nicodemus has this encounter with, with Jesus. Uh, and let me just dive into it since we've, you know, spent 15 minutes <laughs> in uh, prelude, uh, and uh, we'll see how far we get. So John 3, verse 1. Uh, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So let me just kind of stop there. There's a lot going on there. Um, 
First, it describes Nicodemus as somebody who's pretty entrenched in his commitments in the religious hierarchy, power structure. He's established. Mm-hmm. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, a Pharisee. Uh, and um, he comes to Jesus at night, which is probably, it's, in, it's mentioned, so it's probably significant. You know, lots of people believe he wants to have this conversation without being without having to explain it to his tribe, maybe like, you know, uh, and he has this, he has this sort of enigmatic statement about, Hey, we know you're a teacher. It comes from God for no one could do the things you're doing if God wasn't with him, but there's sort of a dot, dot, dot kind right. of yeah. hang, hanging, but mm-hmm. so what do you, what is his, what is, what is Nick? What's what's going through Nicodemus's mind at this point? You think? Yeah, I don't know. It feels almost like he's playing it a little safe. Like I want to ask a question, and but I'm going to make a statement. Uh, I think he's also, uh, from what I read on uh, commentaries, he would have been considered a wealthy, a pretty wealthy, influential person. Um, so John John will highlight some uh, of the upper echelon. Uh, in the Jewish society that Jesus interacts with. Cause I, I just want to make sure that people aren't that, that they understand that Jesus was not biased in his, I'm only going to be concerned for um, marginalized and outcasts, or I'm only going to mm-hmm. be concerned for wealthy influential mm-hmm. people. He, 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 he interacted on multiple levels, yeah. but I think right. Nicodemus coming at night is a signal. Nicodemus not uh, really asking a point blank question which would have been uh, part and parcel for a rabbi, for teachers to ask questions. And this is how they would engage theologically in banter. So, yeah, it's almost like I don't even know what I'm asking. I don't right. even know what to say. Right. But I'm, I'm something. There. Yeah, there's something that's causing me to come to you at night. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. You're not what we expected you know, there's a sense of we, it's clear you're from God, but it doesn't seem like you're one of us. And that's the dilemma, like, because he supposedly represents the God party, you know, the tribe of people who are totally in with God. We know you're from God, but you seem completely different. And I don't know what to do with you. I don't have a category for that. And in terms of our encounters with people, I do think there's a question there for us is, you know, am I spiritually interesting or is there some, you know, is, is, is the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of the Holy Spirit is a certain Christ likeness or image of God coming through that might cause people to say, you're something about, I, I kind of want to talk about it, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Is that, is there something, there's a spiritual reality to us that might draw people in to have a conversation? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the first question because I, I don't think, you know, people aren't going to come to us because of a social media post or some clean argument we're laying out for the facts. They're probably, so Nicodemus is responding to the person of Jesus. There's something there. I kind of like to know what it is. I don't know what it, I don't know what's going on there. 
And I think that's probably something for us to ask ourselves. If people look at me and think, oh, there's something different there. He's not easily fit into a box or a category. Um, you know, he's somebody I want to oppose, but I can't really, uh, I don't know what to do with that. And therefore I'm curious. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. And I think coming back to the original question of the beginning of how do you change your mind? Uh, we all have paradigms and, and essentially what we're saying is how, how do you even shift your paradigm? And Jesus doesn't fit in Nicodemus paradigm. Like, okay, teacher from God and no one could perform the signs, but there's something else that I can't even explain. You're outside of my paradigm of what a teacher from God does and says, right. and you don't seem to care about what we think about you yeah. as a teacher from God potentially should. Yeah. So you're outside of my paradigm. And yeah. I think it's important. I, I don't think we should be, you know, shock value and authentic people, but there is a countercultural nature to what it means to live and love like Jesus. And it, it doesn't fit into a lot of uh, contemporary paradigms, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, mm-hmm. reviled, you know? Um, and I think often that's polarizing for people when they, when you don't fit into a paradigm for them. Um, but that's not really Jesus concern. Like that's Nicodemus right. responsibility. Yeah. You don't see a lot of other Pharisees coming to him at night saying the same right. thing. So, cause right. they've already decided you don't fit in my paradigm and therefore I'm pol- like, it's polarizing and I'm against you. Yeah. yeah. Me good, you bad. Yeah. And so I think there's a, that, I think that says nicely kind of what I'm, trying to formulate this idea that sometimes we're so concerned about fitting into the culture so that we can be heard by the culture, that we become just like the culture, and then nobody cares what we have to say. Mm -hmm. That there's a certain level of approachable, gracious, spiritually real counterculturalism that we probably need to have our eye out for, that we shouldn't be just like everybody else. Or else, what do we have to offer? I mean, if we're offering transformation, what does transformation look like? And so, yeah, the op, the, the choice, the bad choices we often make are some hard and fast subculture where we're completely different and proud of how different we are and therefore unapproachable and unattractive, mm-hmm. or we're completely the same in everything, every belief, and we don't really seem to have anything to offer. Um, and so Jesus is is his own person, and he is obviously a, a embodiment of spiritual reality, and Nicodemus is responding to that. And so Nicodemus is sort of throws this sort of opening, not even a question, just a statement. And then in verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. So on the one level, Jesus is is not not trying to be super helpful. (laughs) No, he doesn't really find a great common ground here in this conversation with Nicodemus. Hey man, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of get it. You know, you don't really know what to do with me. Ba-da-da, ba-da-da. <laughs> no, yeah, he's saying you are not going to be 
able to even judge whether I'm good or not. Uh-huh. You can't see the kingdom of God. You say, well, you know, your teachers come from God. You can't see the kingdom of God truly unless you're born again. There's a spiritual something uh-huh. that has to take place in you that hasn't happened yet. And that obviously blows Nicodemus's mind. And this is obviously where we get the, we get the use of the term born again. Um, cause it's a, it's a picture Jesus uses with Nicodemus and Nicodemus totally has no, what, what, how, what, how can someone be born? I'm already been born. What does that even mean? Uh, and Jesus then just doubles down on it and said, listen, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. Uh, you know, the spirit of God has to be moving in you. There's a spiritual rebirth that you have to encounter and, you know, so you shouldn't be surprised at if you're Israel's teacher, you should already know that is kind of what Jesus is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that part. <laughs> like you, you shouldn't <laughs> be surprised at this. Like if you call me a teacher, I'm taking you to school. Like you should know this. Right. By now. Yeah. And, and so there's probably a lesson again, you know, I, I think we've talked and we've talked before about, you know, Jesus being an example for us in some things, but, but maybe not in all things. Obviously, he has a certain force and authority that we don't have. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain level of scandalization that's required, right? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, like, it's like, you know, we use the iceberg illustration for a lot of different reasons. But it's almost as if um, Nicodemus invites Jesus to the 10% of the iceberg that you see. And Jesus doesn't, he, he has no interest in answering this question. Yeah, I'm from God and God's with me and that's how I'm doing the signs. He has no interest in that. He gets straight to something that uh, Nicodemus is, should know, but is unaware of. And he tells him what he's lacking and the very things that he, the very thing that he needs uh, that he can't give to himself. Mm-hmm. And so he's aiming at, at layers that are uh deeper than Nicodemus is seems to be prepared to have a conversation about. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I don't know that I have a super good category for that for my own self, because I do think we tend to think we, I mean, I do think in general, it is good for us to find common ground and try to find a reasonable way to the gospel. Jesus doesn't really do that here. I think partly he's assuming a whole lot of common ground because he's a Pharisee. Yeah. There's a whole lot of, of scriptural history and, you know, uh, just history that, that goes into that, that they share. Um, and so, yes, find some common ground, find your way to the gospel. But the gospel is scandalous. I mean, mm-hmm. you have basically in the, the gospel is just more than a set of facts. So you have to, you have to repent. You have to submit to, you have to give up lordship of your life. It's a big, you know, you have to be spiritually transformed. You have to be born again. And there's, you know, there's some point at which we can try to find our way from common ground to the gospel. But once you get to the gospel, maybe we can be a little guilty of trying to make that too easy. Um, You know, yeah, just say this prayer and you're in the club or believe these things. Mm -hmm. And obviously saying a pair and believing the things 
are part of the process, but the process is a big deal. And so there's this dilemma of, <clears throat> there's no way to completely understand, compl you know, I'm still understanding what the deal is, you know, decades after making it. I mean, it's this huge, just like this, the iceberg, you can't really, you know, totally get your arms around. And yet somehow we have to give people the sense of, you know, there is sort of a scandalous reevaluation of everything in your life that has to take place, maybe not immediately, but at least over time. Yeah. I think there's a dilemma there for us because I think one way to get that wrong is to say, okay, before we commit here, here's the list of things you're going to have to change about your life. And it almost becomes a list of prerequisites that, you know, if you're living with your girlfriend, you got to move out. If you're gambling, you got to stop. Yep. If you're what, whatever the thing is, you got to do all of these things and then you can become a Christian that that's never true. Uh, but instead it's if you're born again, everything is going to get renegotiated in your life. Just FYI. Um, so I don't know. I'm kind of trying to throw this, this balance out, this balancing act that we have to sort of, you know, without putting prerequisites, we communicate, this is a big deal. This is not just believing a few things you didn't used to believe. Yeah. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you, how do you approach that balance or maybe change the terms of it? No, I think that's right. Um, I think that's, it is conversion is a major thing to ask someone to convert, you know, cons it's probably not a, great parallel, but a staunch right winger or left winger, you present them with all these facts and then you ask them to, Hey, I, I want you to convert parties. Like that's a really big thing to ask somebody and for ask them to consider. So, uh, Nicodemus is actually in the spiritually conservative, but also politically conservative realm. And it, probably sounds a little dangerous what Jesus is yeah. asking him to consider. Like, what are you asking right. me to give up here? Um, right. Because he's not asking him. He doesn't say, okay, well, you might need to not be a Pharisee. Or if you're right. a Pharisee, you might need to give different right. money differently. Or you might need to tell some Pharisees something else. He's saying like, everything you've really thought and done needs to be shifted. So well, let's start mm -hmm. with the heart of all this. Like you have to give yourself something that you can't even provide yourself. So let's just go there for now. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and that's the balancing act of we want in some sense, it's simple. It's grace. So it's like, we don't have to do anything. We don't earn it, but there is a, this is going to cause a reevaluation re that we don't know where this is going to, you don't know. I don't know. No, nobody knows where it's going to go. It's not just uh, move the chessboard around. It's I'm going to give you a new chessboard. Yeah, right. Right. And I think Jesus um, yeah, continues in the, in the passage in verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. <laughs> You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? <laughs> and that's kind of, I think, I feel like, um, I almost feel bad for Nicodemus here because like, his mind is on midnight meeting. Like, what just happened? What's going on? What is happening? And I think Jesus is sort of illustrating, unless you're born again, if there are things of the spirit, you have to have the spirit to fully to grasp them. Um, and it's not uh, some 
you know, linear progression of facts. Um, there's an essential, essential spiritual nature uh, to, to Christianity. And that's what we're asking people is to spiritually, to be spiritually awakened in, <clears throat> in a way that they probably, they don't know what it is before they've done it. We're asking them to taste something. We're asking them to take a big bite of something or to eat a whole plate of something they've never tasted. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a big deal. Uh, and I think for me, that points to how do they have a sense of what the plate tastes like? Well, hopefully I've given them a sense because I have some lived spiritual reality. The, like the very reason they, what they're having the conversation is the first place is there's some spiritual attractiveness there that I'm responding to. Um, and maybe that's a, I mean, I think that's probably some sort of an essential People aren't going to dive into the spiritual pool unless they see me swimming in it and saying, hey, the water's fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the thing for like us to remember when we started with the paradigm conversation is Jesus doesn't ask Nicodemus. He says he doesn't say you've almost got it. Right. You've almost got right. it because in the Pharisees right. mind. Right, so remember, this is the reason he's probably has this tone and these type of statements to him is this is an insider who thinks they are very insider and they're a leader of the insiders. And, you know, I, I would argue Jesus doesn't really have this tone with the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't have this tone with the Samaritan woman at the well. He may say difficult things to them in their context, but but it's different for Nicodemus. Jesus, Jesus has conversations based on the person. And presents the gospel based on the person and what they what they uh, bring to him, and so he he doesn't his statements again continue to press on the paradigm in Nicodemus. None of these fit in my paradigm. None of these fit in my paradigm. That's I don't even I'm Israel's I am Israel's teacher, and I know the Bible, and none of this fits into my paradigm. I right. don't understand what you're talking about, and right. this is the part of Jesus that actually for me is very uh, convicting. Because uh, Jesus has way more integrity to the truth here than I do. And when I start to press on somebody, if they're, they get uncomfortable or whatever else, I'm like, oh, well, okay. You know, I don't want you to feel too bad that you don't know these things. You know, maybe we could sit down and let's kind of discuss right. it. If, right. we're going, if we're going Enneagram here, Jesus is, is eight. He's just like, look, you don't know this and you should know it. And I'm going to keep pressing you and keep pressing right. you. And yeah, yeah, there's I just, no way around it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's no easy route. There's no easy button. You have, you're going to have to wrestle with this. And I think there's a part of that. That's a lesson for us that we do probably try to not have people wrestle with it mm -hmm. without, yeah. and again, he's not putting preconceptions. He's not giving a list of anything, but there's this spiritual reality you have to wrestle with. And, um, he's, he finishes the passage in a very interesting way, finishes the encounter in a very interesting way. I think, uh, in verse 11, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses was lifted up in the, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So John 3.16 is the verse that finishes this passage where he gets to 
the gospel. He gets to, you know, he's pretty directly saying that Jesus is the one who's come from heaven um, <clears throat> and that the son of man must be lifted up just like the snake in the wilderness was lifted up and that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then there's the famous statement of the gospel for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that verse 16, I mean, there aren't quotation marks, I don't think, uh, in the original Greek. Um, I think many interpreters think that's God, that's John's finishing of, to the passage. And Jesus may not have spoke those words. John spoke those words. It's it's, it, may, it would matter to Nicodemus. I'm not sure it matters to us if we think the scriptures are God breathed, and you know, either way, that's God's telling us. <clears throat> and so, what I think is interesting, in some sense, he gets more explicit. He gets less implicit, more explicit. That you're going to have to believe in me, the Son of Man. I'm going to get lifted up just like the snake in the wilderness. And there's that picture of uh, the episode, I think, in Numbers, uh, when you know the people had sinned and there was a plague going through and. Uh, God told Moses, take the snake and put it up on a stick and whoever looked at the snake would be healed. There's this sense of, you know, that that's was a precursor of some bigger thing that's going to happen. Um, but even in the explicit nature of it, there's sort of an essential scandalous nature of the gospel that there's this sense of <clears throat> Jesus has to die for my sins. That's part of what I have to reckon with that. Um, I have a, a debt of sin I can never repay. I'm, I'm, I can't pull myself up on my bootstraps. I can't go through a self-help program. I'm helpless. You know, I need to look on the one who dies for me in the cross. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the, again, this essential. It's not just changing a sense of beliefs. I have to understand. I have to look at myself in a new way, look at God in a new way. And I think that's a very difficult belief for a lot of people to accept in our in our culture. Um, so what do you think of that, the essential scandalous nature of the gospel and how we deal with it with people who are lost? Well, I think I think it, it the, the gospel, the nature of the gospel always scandalizes. And I think it just depends on where the person is potentially and what the person is dealing with it may be that this that it's grace that scandalizes the person of i i can't keep my life together and i don't deserve to be loved and i don't yeah they're all too familiar with their own sin yeah right and it's the grace of well you don't have to do anything to be loved Mm -hmm. and you know i don't know if you've heard Brene brown talk about her uh illustration of having all these kindergartners do like jumping jacks. And it's an illustration of the parable of the 11th hour where the person who comes to Christ uh, basically on their deathbed or whatever, um, still mm-hmm. receives the same wages as the person who worked all day type of thing. This is the same gift of grace. Well, all these kindergartners are doing jumping jacks, but she gives the one who just did it for like 30 seconds, the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the kindergartners are, they're pissed. They're super upset. Like this is unfair. Mm-hmm. And she, and she says, that's the whole point. Like grace, grace is offensive in some senses because it's just not fair. Like you can't Mm -hmm. earn it. It's no one for one. You don't work for it. So that may be a scandalization, but, but here for our context, the scandalization is Nicodemus had worked very hard. He's a very religious person. And to tell him that he is not enough and that he doesn't have it uh, is scandalizing to say all that you've done and all that you've achieved 
basically that's what's getting in the way. Right. That's everything that's right. getting in the way. So Jesus, Nicodemus, I wrote this down as you were talking, Nicodemus wanted Jesus to complement his paradigm, but Jesus wanted to completely overthrow his paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we've got it right, right? We're seeing this clearly. Mm-hmm. He says, no, yeah. you're actually not. <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah. And I think, again, that's part, part of the gospel. There's, there's no way around. Now it's a very, if you understand reality, it's a very good and gracious part of the gospel. Um, but, but there is a, a part of that gospel you can't get around. Uh, okay. One more thing that uh, in terms of spiritual people responding to spiritual things, um, sometimes what I have found, and you can you know tell me what you think is there is a, uh, a sense of, I understand spiritual reality maybe through a belief that evil exists. Um, What do you think of that? Um, Well, you immediately reminded me of one of N.T. Wright's latest books, Simply Christian, maybe not latest book, Simply Christian. And he holds up four paradigms or four um, kind of ways that people are having spiritual conversations. And one of those is the justice and injustice conversation, the presence of evil and what, is going to be done about it. And so I, I do think that is true. Um, the not, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but the pathway into uh, spiritual reality and truth and the existence of God is the examination of what do we do with evil and is there evil in the world and what's going to happen? <clears throat> yeah. I think I've actually had that conversation with people where they're maybe struggling with thinking that spiritual things are real uh, but when asked about, uh, the reality of evil, they go, okay, yeah, no, I, that's something I have experienced. Um, and so that might be a way in, uh, as well. Um, so yeah, as it's, it's an encounter Jesus has with somebody who in some sense is very close in some sense is very far. And there's probably stuff for us to learn from it. And I do think for me, just as we're wrapping this thing up, is one of the things that you see in Jesus continually is he's um, he honors people's curiosity, even as he blows their mind or even as he changes their paradigm. Um, he, you know, so that, you know, am I kind of back to our origin at the beginning. Do I, am I firm enough? Here's a few things I believe I can talk about anything. Everything's negotiable, you know, don't worry about asking about anything. Uh, and can I, into then I invite, uh, you know, spiritual conversation and am I in, you know, am I engaged in understanding that, Hey, some of the stuff's a mystery. I don't even understand it. I'm still learning that sort of stance seems much more approachable than I have it all together, totally buttoned up and you have to accept the whole package or I got nothing to say to you. And I almost feel like the second one is the one that we feel like in order to talk to somebody about spiritual things, I need to be in that second category when actually the first category is better. Right. First category is better, uh, especially if it's, if it's genuine, that you really are curious and open, that you really are mm-hmm. 
holding things uh, that need to be held lightly, holding them lightly. You really are open to mystery and you really are aware that, you know, if God hadn't woke me up and moved me along and even continue to humble me now, who knows where I'd be. Right. So, yeah, right. I, I can't do this on my own. And um, I, this is just what my story is. Yeah, I that, think that's a that you know, you talk about testimony. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is just this is how I've come to know and experience God's grace and God's love. And I think telling your story is a powerful thing. Yeah. And from a standpoint of I didn't get here because I'm clever or smarter or, you know, that sort of thing where by God's grace, God's brought me to this point. There's a spiritual reality here. I think to be spiritually interesting maybe is, is the, is, uh, as we said at the beginning, it maybe spurs the conversation in the first place. Um, but then this, maybe this last point, and this is something that, uh, you know, it, it, it's a different thing than when Jesus is doing it because we want we, we need to let their encounter ultimately be with Jesus, be with the spirit, not with like at some point, the transaction, if the transformation, if it's going to take place is between them and Jesus, them and the spirit, mm-hmm. them and God, mm-hmm. not between them and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I might not even be around when it happens. It might be six months later or a year later or whatever. Uh, but that do I really believe that God can bring this person to a, a saving knowledge of the truth and a saving relationship? And that's going to have to be, do I believe my own words that that's going to have to be a, a God thing, a spirit thing? And how does that impact what the encounter is like? Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, I, I think we sometimes want to take too much responsibility and it's just very freeing to say, here's the deal. Here's my story here's my journey, here's what I believe, here's my explanation. And you're just going to have to, I'll help you grapple with it. it. Ultimately, you have to, it's it's a you and God thing. It's not a you and me thing. And that, in a way, that's very freeing. It's very freeing. It's almost a res- not just a respect of the person, but it's almost a respect of the process. Like I respect God's movement here and I don't need to force anything or press anything. I will you know, do my part and speak up and be faithful and um, da da da. But I don't have to be anxious about it uh, because I'm going to respect God's work in this person's life. And if he's working, then we'll keep having conversations. Right. God is God. He's in charge. If someone is to be born again, it's going to be because of his movement and not my magic words and all of that stuff. I have responsibility, but he's, he's God and I'm not. Uh, and I think that, um, I think if I really believe that in my own life, then that will come across in a way that's, uh, much more, uh, again, much more comfortable. Like it's not winning someone over, but it's sort of opening the door or being a doorway so that God can win them over or something. I don't know. I haven't really thought about how to how to say that, but that's essentially what it has to be. And so, um, and so I think, you know, back to first principles, uh, part of it is, um, you know, my, my walking in the spirit, am I practicing spiritual habits? Is there spiritual reality to me? And am I willing to sort of talk about that in a way that's attractive and also scandalous and let God do what God does? Uh, So that's, we'll close it on that. I think that's what will be our, kind of the closing thing to take away and think about. Uh, Hopefully that's challenging and hopefully that's also freeing. 
uh, is that what God is doing, let God do what he's doing in your life and, and open the door for God to do that same thing in someone else's. Uh, and with that, grace and peace. Thanks for listening to Rogue Table Talks, a Calvary Church Media Productions podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.